Hello and welcome to the NCETM podcast. I'm Gwen Trasida from the NCETM communications team and my guest on this podcast is Dr Eugenia Cheng. Hello Eugenia. Hello, thanks for having me. Hi, it's lovely to talk to you. Eugenia Cheng is scientist in residence at the School of Art Institute of Chicago and I saw her speak earlier this year at the MEI annual conference at Bath University. She got a great response from the mostly maths teacher audience with her unique way of viewing the world through a mathematical lens. She uses the vehicle of abstract maths to explain the world we live in. And if that sounds incredibly complicated, then stick with me, because she's completely committed to opening up the world of maths to those that find it difficult or confusing or alienating. As teachers, we teach students feeling like that every day. So I hope you find Eugenia's perspective on all this will offer you some food for thought. So hello, Eugenia. Hello. Do you want to start by giving our teachers a bit of background to you and your mathematical journey, Do maybe yeah. starting with school? Yes. I was at school in Brighton in the okay. UK. I was born in the UK and grew up there. And I was very lucky because my mother showed me fun and curious maths things that she liked at home. And so even when I didn't really find maths lessons at school too interesting, because I admit I didn't always, I knew there was something more exciting out there for me if I just kind of made it through all those exams for long enough. And I went to Cambridge as an undergraduate and it got harder and harder to make it through those exams. And I I found it quite difficult at the level of finals where some other people, mostly male people were just sailing through and telling everyone how easy they found it which I found very off-putting but then once I got to do my PhD which I also did in Cambridge I found that I was much better at research than I had been at exams and curiously quite a few of those boys who had said they were finding it terribly easy didn't get on so well with research and quite a few of them Um, stopped their mathematical career either after their PhD or after their first postdoc and went and did something else whereas I carried on and became a successful research mathematician but it wasn't just research I wanted to do I was always very much a believer in education and I really cared about teaching and I've enjoyed teaching all the way through my life starting from when I was quite young and I just liked helping other my friends in my class to understand things that I understood better than them Mm. and I always volunteered with maths in primary schools starting when I was a PhD student so I I volunteered with year two and I found it I, I was a bit despondent at first because people said to me awful things like don't you think that's a bit of a waste of your maths abilities as if helping children with maths I think helping children with maths is the most important thing especially at the beginning because that's where everything starts that's really the front line of education and so I really cared about teaching undergraduates as well as part of my job I wasn't one of those people who just wanted to do research and uh I went oh well I suppose I'll have to teach then so uh, um, then I travelled around a bit because you kind of have to do that to have a career as a research mathematician they expect you to keep uprooting yourself so I went and did a postdoc in Chicago and then I did one in Nice, France and then I became a lecturer at the University of Sheffield 
And after a while there, which I'm sure we'll come back to, I kind of decided that I didn't want to do that anymore. And I felt like I could make more of a difference if I did more outreach work and more public work and more work bringing maths to a wider audience beyond maths students at research universities. So now, fast forward several years, it's not (laughs) like I just clicked my fingers and changed this around, but... After a few years of developing all those things, I'm now teaching maths to art students at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. I write books for a general audience about maths and I do a lot of public speaking to try and share my message with as many people as possible beyond universities. And to that end, I also write a column about maths in the Wall Street Journal and I do mathematical art. I've had several mathematical art commissions and I also play the piano and run a not-for-profit institution in Chicago to also bring classical music to a wider audience because there are problems with that right. as well. So that's quite, so, a, quite yeah, a varied quite por- a portfolio, isn't it? Yes, and I, I'm glad you used the word portfolio because <laughs> I remember when I first heard the term portfolio career, yeah. I just immediately felt a connection with it and I thought, oh, I want one of those. <laughs> and I had been, I had been trying to fit myself into a box of a normal academic career that I could sort of stuff myself into it, but it was uncomfortable. Yeah. So, does it, so would you say a normal mathematical academic career has a quite a rigid box? I think so. Yes. I mean, certainly that's my experience of it, and I'm sure that there are people who've had different experiences of it. Although it's hard to say whether that's just because they fitted into the box more easily than I did. But yeah. there's the usual ways of judging people where you have to publish loads of papers in the most prestigious journals possible, get large grants that you're assessed according to the amount of grant income you come in and that you you bring in. And I wasn't that interested in seeking out large quantities of money. You know, if I had been interested in money, I'd have gone and worked in the city. And there's a reason I didn't do that, which is that I'm not that interested in money. Mm -hmm. And so it made me uncomfortable that that was the way in which we were going to be judged rather than anything to do particularly with the teaching and communication of mathematics. Right. So um, just rewinding a little bit to school and to your mum, was your was your mum a mathematician then? She does have or... a mathematical background. Uh, mm. And then she, she did a master's in operational research. And then she uh, became a consultant. Um, I used to say that she was a statistician and I recently discovered that she wasn't, which is a bit Mm. embarrassing. I don't think I ever really quite understood what she did do, but she was certainly mathematical and certainly mathematical enough to care and to just naturally tell me things. Not like, now we're going to sit down and do some maths, but just uh, like you read and you talk about the world with children. She also talked about mathematical things with us. Interesting. And did she did she keep that up through the difficult days of university as well? Or did you find your own motivation there? Well, at university, it had got so advanced, I think that it was it was beyond the level of curious things that we see around us. And it was Mm. really it's that thing about exams where you're somehow expected to stuff tons of material into your brain and then spew it all out again. That's the thing that I found. I found the, the during the year, I found the work really interesting and I found all the subjects interesting. But it was just that process of stuffing it into your brain in order to spew it out in a short period of time that I found really painful. Right, and I think we're probably going to talk more about that later, aren't we? But yes, before we probably. do that, um, can you tell me a little bit about your students that you're teaching now, which I believe are quite different to the students that you've been used to teaching as a, 
as a sort of uh, maths researcher, is that right? Oh yes, very different. <laughs> so they are art students and so they have typically not been that successful with normal maths education in the past and they may have been actively put off it or they just weren't interested enough to keep going with it and so they're very interesting people because they're very serious students it's a very um as they call it elite i hate that word but <laughs> it's an it's, a, it's an elite school and they're undergraduates who are all doing fine arts degrees so it's either painting or drawing or or fashion photography architecture graphic design um animation all sorts of things mm. and they have they, so they're very serious students. They're just not serious about maths. But because they're serious students and they're articulate and reflective, I take the opportunity to talk to them about their past maths experience. And they love sharing with me their experience of maths and how they feel about it and what's happened to them in the past. And so I get to learn a lot from those students yes, about what happened to them. And I think that that when teaching is at its best, it's surely a two-way process where it's not just a teacher teaching things to students. Everyone learns things from everybody. And I've learned so much from my art students. So I think this is, uh, it was your ideas of gender and maths that really challenged the audience at the MEI conference that I, that I was at. So mm -hmm. perhaps you can explain to our listeners um, how, how teaching the students you teach now has developed that, the, your ideas on gender. And also perhaps, yes. you know, why, why do you think boys do better at maths and why do more boys choose maths than girls? Mm -hmm. So this is, this is a question I'm asked a lot because I am a female person and maths is a male-dominated world and it's still pretty male-dominated. And when I taught maths at, at normal research universities, all of the, the classes I taught were very male-dominated. And then I moved to art school and the opposite was true. It's not male-dominated at all. It's 60% female people at the art school and in my classes it's even more than that and I thought that was very interesting and I thought hmm I wonder how this plays out and how that affects the way that my classroom is and it was very interesting because one of the first things I noticed was that the the male students specifically the white male students still managed to dominate the conversation even though they were in a severe minority. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I usually have more trans students than cisgendered white male students. And they still managed to dominate the conversation. And so I started thinking about this. And it really came to a head in the autumn of 2016. Various things came to a head in the autumn of 2016. One of which was that the, there was a, some kind of sports thing going on in Chicago and everyone went completely crazy about it because a, a team won something. Now, I don't follow any of this right. and, and I'm sure British listeners may not have any idea of what was going on in Chicago at the time. <laughs> but when I talk about this in the US, everybody knows exactly what I'm talking about. And the whole city went completely mad for it and couldn't stop talking about it because the Chicago team was going to win something for the first time in ages. And... I felt quite disconcerted about how much everybody cared, especially given the other stuff that was going on in the world at the time. Mm. And I talked to my art students about it and they didn't care either. And then there was this funny thing that happened, which was that I went to a, I, I was supposed to be giving a presentation on the actual day of the final or whatever it's called. And I worried that nobody would turn up 
<laughs> and I, I wondered if we should cancel it. But then I went. And of course, it was a great filter because it meant that all the people who turned up were exactly the people who didn't care about that thing. And we started talking about how that relates to art and artists and realized that it was that they not only do they not care about winning and losing because art isn't about winning and losing there. They were actually a bit put off by the whole idea of trying to beat somebody. And that's right. how I feel as well. And I realized that that's a character trait that is really interesting and might be related to the kinds of people who are attracted to maths the way it's typically presented. And so I started, and I had been for a while, I'd been thinking about character traits and masculinity and femininity. And this is a big topic at the moment because of toxic masculinity and how we get women to just um, not be so oppressed and, and, and connected with things like who's in power politically and sexual harassment. These are all related things. And it's just, related to just, my um, story. Yeah, go on. Hold on a minute. Just uh, define toxic masculinity for us, will you, before you move on? Oh, well, there's the idea that um, that some men, there's, there's a move away from traditional models of masculinity. Mm. and that, But then there's a backlash against that, which is that some men are clinging to the, the old traditional models of masculinity which results in things like wanting them they want to have power over women they think that women aren't equal to men they want women to be submissive and take traditional sort of domestic submissive roles where right. the men have power okay. that kind okay. of thing sorry um, i interrupted you <laughs> oh it's all right so i had this narrative about my own career which went like this and it made sense to me at the time, and I'll preface this by saying it doesn't make sense to me anymore, but some, <laughs> something about it makes sense. You know, there yeah. is a sense, there is some sense in it. So I used to say to myself, well, when I was a PhD student and a young researcher, I decided that I should hide all aspects of femininity so that I wouldn't give people a chance to stereotype me and say that I wasn't good enough because I was a woman. Right, and, is and that, then, was that a conscious decision? Or is yes, that, yes, right, it was okay. absolutely conscious. You know. And then eventually when I became more secure in my job and I had a permanent job, I wanted to try getting in touch with some aspects of femininity for the first time. So I did it, but only outside work because I was still uncomfortable showing that at work. And then I had a weird double life and I thought, well, this is a bit, uh, it's, it got a bit uncomfortable to have a split life. And so I tried to bring some aspects of femininity into my work life, mm. at which point I discovered that I hated my job and I left. <laughs> so, so what aspects of femininity are you talking about there? Are you talking about visible ones, like what you were wearing, or are you talking about how you behaved or? Both of those things. And so that's the interesting point, because when I thought about it later, after I had moved away from all that, I thought, well, that doesn't really make any sense because everything I do is feminine because I'm a female person. And right. some things I was talking about were things like the clothes I wore, but mm. other things were more to do with the kind of character type that I presented. And I realized that although I, I, was, I was definitely talking about something real, but it didn't make sense to call it feminine because everything I do is female. But we as a world have put character types, we've associated them with genders, and then we get confused because we mix those things up. And women get told things like, oh, in order to be successful in this, you know, you need to be basically emulate traditional male behavior and be ambitious and aggressive and stand up for yourself and, and have self-confidence and take risks. And then right. when women do do that, they get criticized for being, <laughs> you know, too masculine or something. And so the kinds of things I had learned to do were by looking around me at who was successful in academia. And it was things like being very argumentative and 
being very ready to jump on anybody's point and contradict it or right. or talking myself up because when you apply for jobs you have to go on about how great you are mm. and if you don't go on about how great you are you'll never get the job and being very competitive um things things like that and being kind of unyielding because people would people attack each other all the time and so you have to be unyielding under attack and and not really showing emotions I was right. always very afraid to show emotions so when you started behaving in a different way that's when you discovered you hated your job well sort of yes and what I realized was first of all I, I, I don't it wasn't exactly just that I hated my job but it was also that I hated the kind of person that I I, I thought I was going to become because right. I extrapolated and I thought if I keep going like this and I, I realized I just didn't like that behavior and I didn't like the fact that my job seemed to be putting pressure on me to behave like that okay so where did you go from there so I did quit I didn't just wake up one morning and quit that's what it's, I mean I say that for drama but <laughs> I gradually figured out the way to have a different sort of career where I didn't feel like I had to do those kinds of things anymore and I realized that I really wanted there to be different words and a whole different way of evaluating character types so that we can have a, a new dimension, if you like, and stop trying to associate things with gender in the ways of the past because you can you can claim that it's okay for men to be a bit feminine, but there's always going to be a disconnect there because if men are feminine and, and women are masculine, then it always sounds like something is, something is a bit wrong. And... I felt that we needed words and um, a whole dimension to think about character that is is different from that. So I decided okay. to invent some. I decided to invent some words. Go ahead, let's hear them. <laughs> so I invented the words ingressive and congressive. Okay. And ingressive etymologically is to signify going into things, right. and congressive is about bringing things together and making connections between things instead. Okay. And how does that relate to our our sort of ordinary understanding of masculine and feminine well I don't want to make it sound like I'm just replacing the words masculine and feminine with other words because then they'll still get associated with masculine and feminine but the idea is that ingressivity is more about being competitive thinking putting yourself first thinking of yourself as an individual um, standing up for yourself not being worried about what other people think and it might be that men tend to do that more than women do in current society. And I mm. think it's important to note that these are behaviours that we've learnt because of the pressures of society, and it's not something that's innate. And right. I think in particular that society, the way it is, has favoured ingressive behaviour, and it rewards ingressive behaviour as a result of which we're all under pressure to become as ingressive as we can, even outside of academia in all sorts of other fields too, and the world in general. Whereas I think congressive behaviour is about thinking about the community rather than yourself and caring what other people think and making connections between things and bringing people together and finding unity and maybe nurturing and it's possible that women have a tendency to do that more than men do in the current society but it doesn't need to be like that and I think that congressive behavior is better for society and so now I can say something that makes more sense about my own life which is that I had learnt ingressive behavior while I was having a normal academic career and right. now I have constructed for myself a portfolio career where I feel I can really be truly congressive instead of ingressive and I'm unlearning the ingressive behaviour that I previously learnt. 
Okay, so that's really interesting. And now I'm thinking about um, our teacher listeners and thinking about how this might affect the teaching of children and yes. young people. So, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I know most of your students are older than that, but I, th mm -hmm. I believe you do work with some children. Um, yes. And so how, how does it affect your teaching of them? Well, I do think that maths and the education system generally, that maths is, is often presented in a very ingressive way because it's all about getting the right answer and facts and exams and tests and how well you score and whether you're a maths person or not. Whereas maths at a research level is very congressive because it's about shedding light on things and building building theories and deepening your understanding. And it's not really done under time pressure. It, it's done over years. Right. And it's very collaborative as well. So it's not like an exam where you have to do everything by yourself. We work with people all over the world all the time. And I think it's a shame that children might get put off by the ingressive aspect of maths. Firstly, because then they're put off maths. And secondly, because there may well be many people who could go to a much higher level of, at congressive maths. And maybe that means more girls, but mm. maybe it just means more congressive people like me. And I think that I really am a congressive person and that there must be other people out there who are also put off by the ingressive world and could have could have got further. So I try to make a very congressive classroom for my students and present maths very congressively. So it's yeah. two things. It's the, it's the topic, it's the subject, the content itself, and also the environment in which it's presented. Right. And I'm very lucky because I teach at art school where I have basically no constraints. And I know it's very different for teachers who are teaching within the curriculum and you have to prepare people for exams. Yeah. But, and so although I think that you can't just shed all the constraints at once. It may be possible to go a bit more in the direction of congressivity where you can. For example, in a classroom, to make it a safe environment, I mean, I know that a lot of writing has been done on this already about classroom environments and how to make them safe for everybody. But one example that's very specific is about getting students to participate in a class because I'm sure many people have had the experience of it's always the same people who want to put their hand up and answer things. Mm -hmm. And one thing I noticed from, from helping in primary school is that in year two, the children were all desperate to contribute. Mm -hmm. And they all put their hand up whether or not they have anything to say. And they jump up and down because they're so keen to have their hand up. And often the teacher would call on them and they go, um, um, uh, <laughs> I, f I forgot. And it's really adorable. <laughs> Whereas you get to university and suddenly no one wants to put their hand up and everyone's staring at their feet because it has become dangerous. And then the only people who will contribute are the ones who typically are the ones who have no fear of consequences or who are so sure that they're brilliant that nothing's going to happen. And that is the ingressive people. And I mm. used to say it's typically the male people. And then you have to put all these caveats in going, but it's not always the men and not all men and some women. Mm. And this, this removing the gender from the conversation makes it so much less divisive because you can just go, well, this is an ingressive character trait. How can I make it so that congressive people can participate in my classroom? And right. so one of the things I've done is, in fact, something I learned from a, um, a maths teacher at secondary school. And I just put all their names on a lollipop stick and I pull their names out in turn so that I don't ask them to put their hands up. I just ask them what they think. And this works because I have already set up the classroom at the beginning of the year talking to them about 
ingressive and congressive behavior and saying that I'm really going to value congressive behavior and that I'm not interested in seeing how clever people are because often people put their hands up because it's an opportunity to show how clever they are mm. and then congressive people won't put their hands up because it's just a chance for other people to laugh at them about them not getting the right answer right right and this does disproportionately affect women and non-white people because they suffer much more social threat than other people but if I make it clear that I'm not going to let anyone make fun of them and I'm really not going to let anyone make fun of them plus I'm going to actively value any contribution they make because in a congressive classroom we're all trying to learn something together there's no winning and losing there's all the things that we learn together as a classroom and then it means that everybody feels feels confident that they can participate and that it will be a valuable contribution no one will make fun of them and then then we have a congressive classroom and and everyone takes part and from your going back to your own experience at school can you remember times when you felt that lessons or perhaps teachers encouraged more congressive learning and other times when other teachers or other sorts of classroom encouraged more ingressive learning or particular tasks maybe I, I can't remember a whole lot in class that was very congressive to be perfectly honest it was all very ingressive and um, the thing is that when I was at school I was I honestly I, I don't want to sound arrogant but I want to talk about the fact that this can happen both ways even for a congressive person but I mm. was just pretty confident that I could get things right because right. I mostly could and yeah. so my experience was very different I wasn't I wasn't nervous also I should throw in this this important fact which is that I was at a girls school and I think that makes a big difference yeah um and but there were a lot of congressive activities that went on around in the extracurricular stuff so I was always really more keen on the extracurricular activities than the curricular activities and so we did things like put on plays and I played a lot of music and I loved playing chamber music with my friends and in chamber music you're not trying to beat each other you're all doing something together and that it will work best if you can all work together and so those were the things I really loved doing and I loved I loved just getting together in groups and and playing music that wasn't for any particular purpose you know it wasn't for a class and we weren't going to be assessed and it wasn't for a concert (laughs) we were just doing it to do it and that's very congressive and I was quite shocked when I moved to America and discovered that most of those things in universities are all assessed for something and so when I was an undergraduate we played in orchestras and choirs just because we felt like it and here orchestra is is somehow a class and you get assessed and then you get credit for it and (laughs) choir is a class and it's assessed and you get credit for it and even going to a concert you know if you go to a concert in a university here there'll be a faculty member handing out attendance slips to students because they get credit for attending it's very it's still quite bizarre to me yes (laughs) interesting okay so in terms of um uh, our teachers here in the uk um is there anything else that you can think of that you think might be useful to them in the way that you've been thinking Yes, I mean, there's, of course, too much to say yeah. in a short space of time. But another thing that I think could be beneficial is is removing the emphasis on right and wrong answers and making it more a process of discovery. So 
Yes, math does have right and wrong answers, but they come from somewhere. It's about process. And the reason that you know that an answer is right is because of the process you use to get there. And unfortunately, in the education system, and I know it's because of many of the pressures and the constraints to get people through tests, that the, the way you know you got the right answer is because the teacher says right or wrong having looked on an answer sheet and then you get your work back with ticks and crosses and that's how you know if it was right or not and that there's a very interesting TEDx talk I watched recently by David Kung who's a mathematician here who talks about how if we teach maths and any knowledge as authority as being handed down by authority then we end up with members of the public who just associate knowledge with authority and then instead of thinking about process like scientific process and evidence they just turn to an authority figure and decide who they're going to believe and that's how some of the issues with politics have happened at the moment right and and i think that if the emphasis in maths can be about the process of how you tell something is right rather than whether it's right or not then I think it can really change it. And I know that some of that happens with the whole show you're working and then you get some credit. And children can get very frustrated with that if it's done in a certain way because they, if, they, if they do get the right answer, then they get frustrated when they're told they didn't show they're working. <laughs> and um, there's a book I love by Christopher Danielson called Which One Doesn't Belong? And he's a, he's a primary school educator. And every page has four shapes or objects on it. And the question is, which one doesn't belong? And they're carefully set up so that each one could be the one that doesn't belong. Right. And so it's not about the answer you give, but the reasoning that you present. Okay. And I think that's very congressive. And um, do, do, you, do you know anything about the Teaching for Mastery initiative? A little tiny bit. Because I think there's a lot of emphasis there on, on uh, process and mm -hmm. on wrong answers being the beginning of something you know a bit beginning of understanding and, and mm -hmm. also that the whole phrase of the answer is only the beginning you know how mm -hmm. how did you get there or how many different ways are there of getting there mm -hmm. that sort of thing okay i'm just going to ask you one last little question now which is completely well not completely unrelated but um less related to what you've been talking about um i've seen i've seen some of your videos on maths and cooking and um and i just wondered if you wanted to tell us just a little bit about how um how you've why cooking and um, and how you've tried to explain maths to people who might have been put off maths using cooking? Yeah, um, I think one of the issues with maths is that it is very abstract and that we can try and there's this whole, we've got to make it relevant to people and we can try and make it relevant to people but sometimes it backfires because it's terribly contrived like the kind of you buy 87 watermelons and then you and then you lose 16 of them on the way home which just, and nobody falls for that when I mean most children just see through that immediately or the whole you you have 11 apples and you bake six of them into a pie now how many apples do you have and the children yeah. go but have I eaten the pie yet and <laughs> so I I think there's another aspect of it which is that that the principles involved in mathematics are principles that we can see around us in our lives already. And if you're trying to explain a mathematical principle, then connecting it to something that everyone's already experienced in life can help because it's it's then an experience which touches everybody and everyone can feel something. And if you don't feel anything when you're learning maths, then it's much li less likely to go in, you know, if you're, you're just dry and unemotional. And people yeah. think of maths as being unemotional and there is a sense in which we're supposed to remove our emotions to do maths well but we should leave our emotions in in order to learn it the the human experience of learning it and 
everybody has an experience of food. And unfortunately, most people like food more than they like maths, I think. And so I decided that I would use everyone's love of food to tap into, tap into that to explain some of the more abstract principles of mathematics. And this started when I was teaching at the University of Sheffield because I discovered, I told, tell lots of stories when I'm teaching, and I realized that they woke up particularly, I mean perked up, I shouldn't claim they were asleep, <laughs> but they perked up whenever I mentioned food. And so this became a whole, a whole running theme one semester, and then it developed so much that I thought, well, I could make this into a whole book. And, um, and I think there are some similarities between people's experience of learning maths and people's experience of learning cooking. Because if you are told to just follow a recipe and you're not allowed to make up your own recipes and you get graded on your recipe, then cooking is probably not going to seem that interesting. And if you were told that you had to pass exams in cooking before you're allowed to eat at a restaurant, then that would be really sad. Not to mention before you're even allowed to eat anything yourself to pass exams. Whereas when cooking becomes about exploring how to put things together in your kitchen, making things up for yourself and deciding that all that matters is whether you like it or not, then it, the whole thing becomes a, a totally different experience. And I had that experience because I took cooking lessons at school and various things went wrong when I did cooking lessons. And then I felt bad because I had done it wrong. And most children don't like being told they did something wrong. Mm. And, and then, you know, my parents are wonderful at cooking. And I felt like when I was in the kitchen with them, I had to live up to their brilliant cooking. And that was also unfortunate pressure. And so it wasn't really until I went to university, the first time I had a, access to a kitchen, which was probably when I was a, a PhD student, where I could just start experimenting for myself without someone staring at me or judging me. And I think that, that the same things can happen with maths, that if someone is staring at you and judging you and you're worried about how many points you're going to get and whether you're going to get the right answer, then it can be off-putting. Whereas if you just have some basic ingredients like shapes and you can fit them together any way you want and see what happens, then it becomes something that's fun to engage with and you're really doing something mathematical right. along the way. And so it's that idea of, of being sitting down with some ingredients and putting them together by different methods and seeing what happens that I think happens a lot in kindergarten and maybe year one when there's still obviously a lot of play at school and then somehow the play gets kind of left behind and it becomes getting about getting the right answer and so I try to emphasize that through cooking um, that's lovely lovely analogies there <laughs> Um, so just uh, quickly, um, we've we've scratched a bit of the surface of some of your ideas, but um, I think we haven't really we haven't uh, we, we've there's many things we've missed. We, we'd need another couple of hours for that. So yes. if you could just tell us where teachers might be able to find out more about your work if if they want to follow this up, that would be great. Well, my website is www.eugeniacheng.com, okay. and there are a lot of links there to articles I've written and. Um, videos I've made and in fact this is the topic of my next book which is coming out next year and so I'm working on that at the moment and it's going to be called X plus Y a mathematician's manifesto for rethinking gender and this is the congressive ingressive thing is it yes okay good good that'll be interesting to read well I wish you all the best with your work and most of all with your quest to help more people to love and understand maths whatever their gender um, so thanks ever so much for talking to us, Eugenia. Well, um, thank you very really much. Interesting. Thanks. Thank you.